The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to IMC and to our time sitting together and exploring the Dharma together. In the fall, I began a series of talks <coughs> on the Eightfold Path, and uh, today uh, will be, I suppose, the last one, because it's the eighth of the Eightfold Path. And um, the Eightfold Path, those of you who don't know, is one of the most um, representative descriptions, or the stereotypic descriptions used in Buddhism to describe the path of Buddhism from being in a state of suffering to coming to a place where there is no more suffering. And um, I think that's something that many people would like to do, that many people are trying to cope with their lives and are trying to find a way not to suffer. They might not use the word suffering per se for their troubles, their distress, their, their uh, despair, or their challenges or their fear, their stress. But that word suffering is kind of like used in Buddhism as kind of representative of a whole package of what, uh, the problems, struggles that people have in their lives. And, um, and Buddhism is designed to address this by living a life that allows us to turn enough attention inwards to find where within ourselves we contribute to that suffering. So, um, you know, it's interesting that if you're holding someone's hand and they're holding your hand, who's holding whose hand? I guess you're both holding each other's hand, right? And who's responsible for holding each other's hand? You could say both of you are. But if you wanted to find a way to no longer have that hot, clammy, sweaty hand in yours, <laughs> maybe, um, you know, you have to, you know, and, the, and that person's not going to let go. I, you know, you have to kind of look inside of yourself and discover, you know, what's holding, what's keeping you holding on for dear life. And you have to figure out what it is that you need to let go of, what you have to release, so that you can release that, that hold and no longer be holding that hand. You could, you know, be holding that person's hand, and that they can be holding yours, and you can beg them to let go. You could tell them that you don't really want to do the work, you know, I don't, I don't like to work, I'm lazy. Or, you know, I don't feel responsible for this. You're responsible and you should do the work. You let go of my hand. And, you know, so sometimes you have success with other people letting go of the, your hand. But the, the remarkable thing is that we can do it for ourselves too. We don't have to negotiate with the other person. We don't have to beg them or pay them or whatever it takes. 
you can just let go, release your hand and the hands are free. So the most efficient way or the most thorough way, most lasting way to discover how to live a life of peace is not by figuring out all the different strategies to get people to let go of your hand, but rather to learn how to release, you do the work of releasing your hand and no longer gripping. So no matter who you think might be responsible for your suffering, if suffering involves two people tangling with each other, then what Buddhism wants to say is look, look at how you're holding on and perhaps you can let go. And once you have an open hand, you have a hand which is useful for many different things. As long as you have your hand gripping in something, it's not useful for so much stuff. So the Eightfold Path is a way of taking this inner responsibility for oneself and beginning to act and live in a way that supports a process of going from suffering to freedom from suffering, to go from suffering to peace or to ease, to well-being, to happiness. And one of the things that's remarkable about this Eightfold Path is that it offers uh, a path to freedom, to peace, a religious path, some people would say, a spiritual path, without a recourse to the, superna- <coughs> to the supernatural, or not recourse to things which are kind of way beyond anything you can ever discover as being true for yourself. But rather, it's kind of understanding you know, actions, behavior, practices that you can do, and how they help. So there are eight of these practices. And these practices are right view, kind of having, developing an understanding that's helpful for this process of freedom, having the intention to do so, and being supported by a variety of different intentions, attitudes, that supports the process of freedom, of peace. Then behaving in ways that support that process. Uh, if you want to be peaceful but you act violently or uh, then you know that goes in counter purpose of peace. So to speak, the first one is to speak in ways that support the process of peace, to act uh, ethically in a way that supports the process of peace, and then to have a livelihood, a way in which we live our lives, which also supports that process. And then the last three of these eightfold steps is to really to turn the attention within and begin to cultivate the mind or the heart. First, by learning in our own minds what it is that we do, what goes on in our minds, to really understand the inner landscape really well, to understand how the mind um, grabs on and how it can release, to understand the behavior of the mind, the thoughts, the feelings, the attitudes, the desires, the aversions that we have, and really track them well, really be able to monitor them really, really well, what goes on, so we can then begin taking some responsibility for our inner landscape. And, you know, I think we all do that to some degree. Um, It's coming close, a couple of months now, to uh, tax season. And uh, some of you are going to do your own taxes, I imagine. And some of you will put it off until April 14 and a half or something. And and you're sitting there, you know, the evening of April 14 or something, whatever, that before they're due, and you start thinking about what's on TV. (laughs) 
and, and you notice that you're thinking about TV and say, you know, I need to focus on the taxes. And so you, you're, you're monitoring yourself well enough to know this, the TV is not the th- uh, what should be done. You monitor yourself and say, this is what I need to do. So we monitor ourselves all the time, but to do it in a way that supports the process of freedom is a task of what's called right effort. To know what inner behavior, attitudes of the mind, which are not useful and we should not do that, try to let go of it, and to know what kind of inner behavior, attitudes, thoughts are supportive of this process. What to let go of and not be engaged in. And then uh, there's right mindfulness, which is cultivating a heightened level of attentiveness to be um, uh, able to stay in the present moment and monitor in a really clear way with a spacious, open, relaxed attention what's going on in our life. And then the final one, the topic of today, is called right concentration and how to develop uh, a strong, stable, fo- <coughs> focused mind so we can see deeply into our mind and really understand deeply what's going on. We might think that uh, you know, this focus on going in within ourselves to understand this is you know, maybe selfish, but uh, I would think it's more selfish to always be insisting that everyone else release their hands. You know, leave, you know, to always expect every, the world to rearrange itself for you. But to take some responsibility for yourself, I think then we can contribute more to the world. We can meet the world better with more love and care and with the best qualities of our heart. One of the things that's, uh, one of the principles of this Eightfold Path, these eight practices that Buddhism offers, is a, a principle that, uh, maybe the analogy I like to use is that of floating in water. Uh, most people, unless you have, I guess, the right kind of, you know, light body, uh, most human bodies kind of sink. Enough that I think that if a person doesn't know how to float in water uh, at all, never been taught how to float in water, would probably sink and maybe drown. It wouldn't be good for your health. And, um, but... Uh, most people need to learn something about how to float. You, know, you should at least make yourself flat, you should thread water, you should take, you know, big, you know, have a lot of air in your lungs, that helps a little bit to keep you up. And it's a little bit of skill. And once you learn the skill, it's kind of like second nature. It's like feels like you're doing almost nothing at all. But when you learn, it feels kind of frightening and you flail around and it takes a while to kind of learn. But once you learn, you still, even if you get really skilled at floating and you can turn on your back and spread your arms out and your legs out and and really kind of float, and it seems like it's no effort. There's still some effort involved. There's a skill that you have to apply. You have to do something. You have to apply something to it. Even though you would say, mostly what's happening is you're being held up by the water. You're floating. The water is holding you up. But you, the water is holding you up, but you have to do something as well to allow the water to hold yourself up. You have to do something to allow something to good to happen. So this principle that you have to do something to allow some part of, our, of nature of the world or in our life to hold us up, support us and lead us along is a very important principle in the Dharma, in this Buddhist practice. If you think it's only up to you, your efforts, and you, you huff and you puff and you strain to do all kinds of practices, uh, you, you'll probably just sink. But you have to do just enough of your own work and make space to allow for something to unfold and hold you up and support you. And these eightfold practices are practices we do, but it's not only about doing those practices and that's it, the end of it, 
But it's doing these things so that we cultivate ourselves, we grow ourselves, we develop inner strengths, inner, inner skills, skills in letting go, skills in, um, that allow us to let the, um, uh, something supportive unfold. So we come to right concentration. Concentration is a very important quality. Concentration is, um, is uh, a stable mind, a focused mind, which means a mind which is not scattered or distracted a lot. A mind which is jumping around with thoughts, ideas. You know, most mind, people who meditate, you know, it doesn't take long for new meditators to wonder if they have ADD. <coughs> if they have ADD. <laughs> because, you know, it's pretty common for, you know, you try to focus your mind, your mind wanders off and all this thinking. A concentrated mind um, is less and less distracted and scattered. And so it just kind of stays there. The image, kind of an image that I, I'm thinking of lately for a kind of concentrated mind is um, if you take a bowl, <coughs> the big wide bowl, and you kind of release, thrust the marble into that bowl. It, it goes up and down and around and about and kind of does all this stuff. And then slowly the momentum in the, in the marble slows down and eventually the marble comes to rest at the bottom of the bowl. It has to exhaust, you know, all the momentum. So, uh, but if you keep kind of going down at the bowl and, and you know, <coughs> and striking the marble, it'll keep going. Going. My kids at home have some kind of top, and they like they've been spinning the top, and then going sp- spinning it with their finger to see how long they can make it go spin. So we have these tops too, in our brains, right, our minds, thinking, and we keep it spinning. The marble keeps going, but part of what we do with concentration is we learn how not to keep spinning the marble, so that the momentum can go out. And what we find ourselves is the, you know, our marbles. <laughs> Uh, you all come to rest in the bottom of the bowl of the present moment, and it comes to rest. And it, in that restful place, um, a rested, concentrated, focused mind that's not scattered is useful because it has the best ability to see clearly. It's hard to see very clearly if the mind is scattered, if it's distracted, and if it's agitated, rushing around. And what you want to see is you want to see deeply into your own mind to understand the nature of what you're holding on to, how you're making yourself in conflict, how you're stressing yourself out, and what you could do, uh, what, what you can do to make a difference. And again, I can't stress how useful it is to find out how, what you can do to make a difference, because you're portable, you go with you everywhere. And so if you um, have learned the skill of how to be peaceful wherever you go, then you don't have to insist that everyone else do it for you, or you don't have to rearrange everything you come to. Um, but it's a really profound, wonderful skill to do. So, so Buddhism puts a lot of emphasis on this, what sometimes is called concentration. Uh, it's the word is samadhi. Uh, one of the primary ways in which the samadhi is defined is as unification of the mind, to unify the mind. And I like that better than concentration because many people in Eng- who speak English, when they hear the word concentrate, think they have to make their mind into a laser and zap whatever they're focusing on, just one point, you know, really contract and get narrow in their focus. Unification is a soft, open, relaxed mind where the mind is not fragmented from itself, the mind is not scattered, we're not at odds with ourselves. 
it's remarkable, if, you know, how you can see yourself probably, how often the mind is scattered, agitated. But for some people, it's even more dramatic. They have minds which is in conflict with different sides of them. And uh, they're at war with themselves within. There's parts of themselves they hate, and they try to deny, or they push away, or they're in argument with. And, and, uh, and if you do that, you're fragmented. Um, if you um, um, try too hard to get concentrated because you have full of desire to get concentrated, it doesn't really work to get concentrated because there's a way and you're fragmented then. You're, you're kind of separating out from what part, one part of yourself over another. If there's too much of a goal that's in the future, uh, you can't really be settled and unified in the present. And so the idea is to become unified and have all the different functionings of our mental, emotional, inner landscape uh, kind of operating in harmony. Harmony is another word. A concentrated mind is one that's harmonious mind. So that our intentions, our attention, our thinking, our emotions, and the sensations and feeling what it's like to be in a body, the embodied feelings that we have, all kind of are coordinated or harmonized together, uh, stabilized together around the feeling, the sense of being here, present, and focused or stabilized in attention. Um, So... It's, it's not an easy thing to do. It's a kind of an art to learn to do it. And it's a hard one to learn because uh, sometimes uh, the co- many people, when they try to do something, they end up doing it in a way they're in conflict with themselves. They end up doing it so they fragment themselves rather than unify themselves. So they become aversive, for example, to all the ways they're distracted. And so, you know, they're going to push away or deny their distractions. It's bad, bad distractions or bad me. And as soon as we kind of have, are in conflict with some part of ourselves or some part of reality, it's not possible to be concentrated because then there's this agitation. You've spun the, your, your top some more. And so the way to get concentrated in practice is to remember this principle of floating. That you have to learn something but you also have to learn how to let go and allow something to come forth and happen. Uh, it's a little bit different than floating because that's kind of like a done deal, but um, it's kind of like you have to allow something to blossom inside of you and grow and, and grow in its own way uh, rather than something that you, you can't just kind of will yourself into becoming concentrated or stable, this unified feeling and presence that's possible. Um, so the first seven steps of the Eightfold Path are part of the conditions that we cultivate so we can allow to have something within us begin to blossom. It's kind of like the food or the fertilizer for the flower that's going to blossom. And um, so, uh, especially the ethical guidelines of it. To, uh, Buddhism puts a tremendous emphasis on how important it is to live an ethical life, a high standard of ethics, because without that, it, the mind's going to be agitated or fragmented or, or um, you know, it's not going to be able to settle in some deep and relax and settle in a deep way. It also, it puts a big emphasis on understanding an attitude of, that we need to kind of establish some kind of attitude that uh, is in harmony with being at peace, <coughs> with peace with the world, peace with ourselves. 
So the attitudes of uh, uh, letting go of our clinging is helpful. Um, but also uh, having being kind and compassionate are very supportive. Being aversive and angry and critical and, and judgmental don't support, the, or doesn't help the mind settle. It just keeps the top spinning. It's not that easy to change our attitude, but um, it makes a difference to have an intention to do so, to decide inside of oneself in a clear way, even though I can't so easily stop, stop being critical all the time, at least I'm going to know that it's my intention to want that. I, I, don't, want to, I don't relate to that anymore. I don't, I don't want to stand behind it. I'm not a champion of my criticalness anymore, my judgments. I don't really believe in it anymore. And then you can get critical or angry about your, all your judgments, right? No, then it doesn't work. Then you're in trouble, right? So you have to take all your... If, 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 you're, if you happen to have inner qualities, things you do, mental habits of reactions and stuff, that you're not very proud about, don't feel good about, to cultivate the Eightfold Path includes... Be, being somewhat accepting or forgiving of that, not being critical of your criticalness. Does that make some sense? Otherwise, you tie yourself in knots. So, so part of it, in order to get concentrated, you have to kind of both kind of begin working on your attitude, he, heal your attitude, kind of begin doing the inner work it takes to kind of create a kind of healthy inner landscape where we're much more at ease or at home with ourselves rather than fragmented, upset. It's not an easy thing to do. And so that's a big part of cultivation development. But as this becomes stronger, then it's easier and easier to be in the present moment. And concentration requires us, requires us to be in the present and rather than in the past and the future. Past and the future, the further you go up in the past and the future, the higher up you are in the bowl with your marbles. And um, so, the, um, so to c- come back towards the middle, the, the bowl, is to be more and more in the present. And that's the only place we can rest, is in the present. And part of that is because to, to thinking about the past or the future, for example, or fantasy, takes work. The mind has to be active. To be concentrated and focused in the present moment, the mind is much more at rest. It's a mind that's a restful mind. It's not a straining mind to be concentrated, but it's a mind that let go of all those tendencies to think about the past and the future and think about a lot of things. Are you still with me? Yeah? I can go on and on. <laughs> I, and I got myself in a profession where I'm allowed to have these monologues. <laughs> not many people get to do that. <laughs> so I, so every once in a while I have to check and make sure it's okay. So... So, uh, you, know, it, it's, um, um, it, you know, it's interesting what we do with our thoughts. Our thinking is often the vehicle by which we carry along and support and feed and, and bounce back our stress. If you're anxious about something, your thinking has a big part of what's fueling that anxiety. If you're greedy, your thoughts and what you do with your thoughts is a big deal to do about fueling that greed. Uh, if you are uh, hateful or uh, angry, your thoughts and the stories you tell have a lot to do with 
feeding it and supporting it and going back. And I mention this because as the marbles come to closer to the center of the bowl, to the present moment, not thinking about the future so much, the past, not, not thinking thoughts of anxiety, not thinking thoughts of greed, not thinking thoughts of hostility, um, um, the energy we expend to have those thoughts and have those feelings begins to be saved for other things. We don't exhaust ourselves. So what people find who do concentration, you know, meditation, and their mind is more and more stable in the present moment at rest, is uh, the mind itself gets a profound form of rest. And it, um, it's one of the most restful things you can do for the mind is to have a concentrated mind. People who do a lot of it, especially like on retreat, find that they need much less sleep usually than uh, we do in normal life because we're not exhausting ourselves to all the thinking we do and all the stress that that involves. Um, I've known, uh, you know, I, I've gotten down to retreats for long weeks and weeks on end, uh, very happily getting by on four and a half hours of sleep. And, uh, and that's a lot compared to some people. Uh, some people, not, so some of you don't feel bad about yourself. Uh, it's okay to sleep longer on retreats. <coughs> different people have different ways, different, you know, different needs and the minds in a different way. But I've known people um, who have, uh, on retreats, have gone um, sometimes days without sleeping and uh, for long, long periods of time with two hours of sleep at a time. This is not the goal. You don't now go home and try that. Um, most Americans are sleep deprived. They need, medit- they need to sleep more than they need to meditate. But, um, but I, I just m- make this point that you know, a lot of the mental effort, a lot of the exhaustion people have has to do with uh, mental, how we use our mind. And so as we begin to learn to rest the mind in a deep way, the mind gets refreshed, and it's a, in that refreshed mind, it's another way, reason why, the, why a concentrated mind can see more clearly what's going on. So um, a unified mind, a harmonious mind, a settled mind, a mind at rest, a mind that's let go of a lot, a concentrated mind is described as one that's soft, a soft, pliable, resilient mind. It's also a, um, so these are all very nice qualities. And you can't have a harmonious, soft, uh, stable, unified mind by being hard, fragmented, straining, holding on. There has to be this letting go, this letting go. And part of this letting go is a willingness to allow yourself to get concentrated, to allow the settling in, to allow something to occur. So this thing about floating, you have to make some effort to float, but you also have to allow the water to support you. Um, And so this is the part of the art of meditation is both to let go and allow something to happen and give up control (coughs) while having just the right amount of control to stay on track. And so it's a kind of a balancing act um, which is hard to do. It's, some, okay, it's a little bit like, um, have you ever looked at these, um, I guess they're kind of computer-generated kind of uh, pictures where they have all these dots, different colored dots, and um, they all looks like a blur. You can't see anything, just dots. But if you cross your eyes, they kind of, the dots kind of move, and, um, and then they line up, and you see there's a three-dimensional picture there. And some people can't do it. My wife can't do it. She's tried and tried. And, uh, and sometimes I can do it, but it takes a while to do it. And you have to kind of, 
And if you strain and try to do this, it doesn't really work. But you can't just like not do it either. You have to do something. And how do you do this thing that requires not doing and, you know, crossing your eyes just the right way and, and you can't try and, and you have to relax your eyes and let them cross. But, and, then, and then suddenly it happens. And you can't believe it. there's a picture there. And um, three-dimensional and everything, and you can kind of look around and see it you know, move a little bit, and you see the whole thing. You can't believe it. It's a whole scene. And, um, and then it seems really stable. Like, how could you not see it? It's right there. Until you look away and try to come back, and you have to reestablish it. So I don't know if that's a good example, especially if you've never seen this, but they're fun to do. So this thing of allowing. So as, as people learn, as people relax, as people are not in conflict with themselves, so in conflict with the world, as the mind becomes more at ease and begins to rest and is able to uh, let go and become unified and focused, remarkable things begin happening in the inner landscape. And uh, the definition of right concentration, this eighth step, the eightfold path, involves uh, um, uh, allowing the mind to go through the inner landscape to begin experiencing some of this um, different um, flows of energy or the different uh, emotions or senses of being that arise from being unified and concentrated. And I won't go into all of them, but uh, it's described in different ways. Uh, One of them is that um, the mind has an ability to really just stay present and focused, kind of like it's um, um, not easily going to go astray. You choose to have the mind stay focused on something like the breath, and it just stays there. But it's kind of a funny thing because choosing at this point is too much agitation. You've already done all that and trying to get there, come back, come back, come back. At some point, the mind, the ability to stay focused and stay with something becomes easy. It's not work anymore. And a tendency to the mind to wander off, um, it might begin that process, but it comes right back. Kind of like a rubber band attached to the mind. And you're, you're there in the present. Another quality that arises in this is uh, joy. Um, it doesn't have to be strong, but a sense of delight, joy, or well-being. Uh, sometimes it's quite strong. And when it's strong, uh, people describe it as things, uh, use the word of rapture, ecstasy. And I've had people come to me and say, it's, uh, it's orgasmic, it's better than orgasm. Uh, it goes on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> that orgasm just lasts. <laughs> you know, it could be quite intense for people at times. But then as the process goes deeper, um, the, the, uh, the, the joy or the rapture that's a little bit like a thrill, it feels like a thrill as you meditate, it feels like a thrill, kind of delight. Um, a thrill begins to settle. And there's, uh, there's less energy there, less agitation, better than energy. And that becomes um, um, very peaceful. The difference between these two states of um, is the first one, the thrill. It said to feel like a mountain, a um, a lake, which has no water coming in from the outside, no rainwater, no rivers coming in, but is only replenished by a refreshing spring that uh, that bubbles up from the uh, lake bottom and fills the lake with water. So this idea that there's no input anymore from the outside world that's feeding us or supporting us or threatening us, but all the nourishment we need tangibly, physically feels like it's bubbling up and flowing through us. 
and it feels very healing, feels very, a tremendous sense of well-being from this. Uh, a concentrated mind is a mind that where the body begins to heal in deep ways. The heart begins to heal in deep ways. You actually feel sometimes the healing energy. So this kind of nourishment from inside. And then the next stage where there's um, the thrill or this, this inner spring kind of quiets down, the lake is completely still and re- very refreshing, still quiet lake, very, very peaceful. And uh, the, the ancient uh, analogy is, is there's lotus flowers floating in, a, float, or floating in it um, and just, uh, those beautiful flowers are just floating peacefully in a very still, quiet water that's very refreshing. I think the analogy is, works well in ancient India where it's really hot. And so it's a cool, refreshing pool. You just lay there completely still. And then, um, but even that as, uh, can become even more peaceful. And, um, and then there's at some point there's no sense of water at all. There's no sense of uh, pleasure, no sense of pain, but rather some, a tremendous feeling of confidence, mindfulness, clarity, and equanimity where the mind feels completely equanimous in a way that feels so pristinely beautiful. Kind of like an early morning in the high mountains. And you're looking out and there's no wind, everything's completely still, and you look across the lake, and there's, uh, the lake, there's not a ripple, it's completely still and flat. And nothing's moving it. It just feels so peaceful, so pure, so delightful. And so, uh, as the mind gets quieter and quieter, this tr- profound state of equanimity is there. And that state of equanimity, and part of the function of all this, not for its own sake. It isn't like this is like you're a more spiritual person because you can get concentrated this way. Can, you won't believe how much suffering exists in the Buddhist world around people trying to attain these states of concentration and getting concentrated and comparing themselves with people who are and not doing fast enough. And it's an unfortunate disaster zone. Um, but still, they're useful, and they're not in and of them in and of themselves, and not because you get a good badge like your Buddhist <coughs> badge of, mer- of merit, but rather uh, because the mind is not agitated, because the mind is soft, the mind is very, very, very let go. There's not, not very little, almost no holding left in the mind at all. Um, it allows us a chance to let go of the deepest holding and clinging that we have. Let go of our deepest fears and insecurities. Let go of our deepest uh, attachments that we have. Because, because the mind is not locked, it's soft, it's re- relaxed, it's very, very peaceful. And so it's a mind that can, be, that can do this wonderful extra job of just letting go. It's kind of like you're, you're looking, you're out there in the beautiful, maybe mountains, early mornings, very still. You've woken up, refreshed from the night. Temperature is really comfortable and nice, refreshing. And you look across and you see beautiful, still, quiet mountains, maybe snow-capped mountains. Everything is quiet and still, not a bird, not a sound. And you look across the lake, and it's not a ripple on the beautiful, calm, peaceful lake. And you look there, standing there at the edge, and you sit at the edge of the lake. And everything is so peaceful, it feels so good, and you feel so still inside, so good inside. Everything is good and still. And then, amazingly, 
the ground drops from under you. <laughs> Everything goes. And it's the best. Mm-hmm. The last remnant of holding, what you're holding on to, it's kind of like the mind lets go of itself. And that might sound frightening, but you don't disappear. I mean, you come back, you're around. But to know, to know that the mind can really let go, to know that you can really open your hand all the way, that you don't have to grip all the time, and to really know is uh, one of the life-transforming experience to have. Because then, once you've, done, once you've had that experience, then you're much less inclined to believe in the value of clinging. You're much less inclined. You might still have a tendency to cling, but you're not so fooled by it. And you don't, really, you don't think this is really going to, you know, I'm going to cling my way to happiness. It doesn't really make sense. Cling my way to peace. So the Eightfold Path is a process of dissolving, not resolving so much, but dissolving our suffering through insight, deep understanding, through a lot of inner work and cultivation and growth that that involves uh, developing these eight different practices or areas of our life so that we can have the strong mindfulness and strong concentration that allows us both to see deeply what's going on and to have a mind that's uh, still enough and soft enough that something can let go in a deep way. And then um, uh, there is, uh, the result is peace, well-being, freedom, liberation. Um, The word I like a lot is ease. There is now ease, profound sense of ease. And then to live that ease in our life, to begin discovering how to bring that ease into everything we do uh, is the fulfillment of the Eightfold Path. So, that was um, the right concentration. We have about five minutes. If you would like to ask anything about this, yes, please. If maybe you could, if you could use the mic, please, then everyone can hear. There's. A, uh, Um, setting aside the big three in terms of suffering, death, divorce, illness, which I call the macros of, of suffering. Um, every day... So what, were the, what were they? Death? Yeah, death, uh, death illness, and um, divorce. Divorce. Those, death, illness, and divorce. Yeah, those are the top three, and it's been proven 
Holmes, Rahe, and all different cultures. Those yeah. are the top three. Anyway. Forms of stress or suffering for people. Uh, suffering, <clears throat> yeah. Stress and suffering. <laughs> Setting aside those, uh, which we don't experience every day, I assume, that most uh, suffering comes in everyday life, what I call everyday suffering. Uh, my sense is a lot of it has to do with being disappointed. Uh, that is, suffering equal disappointment. The example being, uh, we're Americans, so we weren't really into to-do lists, right? So we set our to-do lists, and we've got like eight things to do today, right? And we get up in the morning and so forth. Okay, so when we achieve something, no problem. The, the real rub comes with item number two and item number five does not get done, or it's disappointment and so forth. So could, could you address this whole issue of... Um, what I call everyday suffering, part of that is being disappointment. Would you yeah. be willing to address that? I, I can try, see if okay. it satisfies you. <laughs> it's, all, it's all subjective. It's all subjective. So the, um, it's a good question. I appreciate it. So disappointment, um, you know, there's, um, I guess, a few things about disappointment is that um, uh, to understand the mechanism of how we get disappointment, the conditions that bring it about, I think would have to get us to look deeply at uh, what our desires are, our hopes. Without desires and hopes, I don't think there would be disappointment. Uh, desires, hopes, expectations, demands, shoulds, there's a whole list of things that ideas and concepts and feelings that people carry with them. and. So, are some of our desires and expectations reasonable to have? And some th some of them are not. You know, it's. Um, I, I was not particularly disappointed yesterday by the Super Bowl. <laughs> you know, it wasn't it, a little bit. I was, you know, but you know, it, it wasn't. It didn't really. I didn't really care that much. I mean, you know, but I know some people who really cared. <laughs> boy, oh boy! You know, they held that desire really strongly. So it's possible to look at yourself and independent of the disappointment to look at the roots of the disappointment, the cause of it. And sometimes it's possible after your disappointment to look back and say, you know, actually that desire wasn't worth having and the disappointment can go away really quickly. So, uh, some things are reasonable to desire, but then the question is how do we hold on to our desire? Do we hold on to our desires with demand, with expectation? Um, what, and what are the demands and expectations we have with them? And sometimes people load their desires, their needs, their desires, with a tremendous amount of extra baggage and requirements. So it isn't just simply that I want my, fav my, my favorite team to win the game, uh, which is a nice thing to do, if, be happy if they did, but um, it's my team and I'm wearing the jersey, and I would really want to be able to go down the street so proud and happy and be part of the gang. And, and there's so many other issues connected to the team winning that have to do with identity and community. That, and so, and so we, we, we overload some of our desires with, with expectations and demands which are much higher than, than what they're about. So we know, like you said, death, for example. Um, I've known people who uh, have grieved the loss of a spouse. And, you know, it seems reasonable to, to grieve a loss of a spouse, but when you scratch the surface of that grief, 
uh, I was surprised. So I've described, and that doesn't happen all the time, but I've described a few times when, when um, uh, the real grief was not the spouse, but was the spouse's income or the spouse's status that was so important or the security they got from being connected to that spouse. So we load our disappointment and desire and attachment are connected to so many different things. So part of the Buddhist practice is to look at this much more deeply, look more deeply, look more deeply. As we do this, let's I'll say the last thing, there might be, uh, might, the, the disappointment might be a very natural part of the process of freedom. Um, uh, or say it a different way, I've, I've heard uh, uh, some people suggest that the process of liberation is, involves a process of grieving. It's not just disappointment, but grieving. Because there's a process, there is a healthy and necessary process of letting go in order to become free. And without allowing yourself to grieve in that process, it's not going to be all kind of happy and, you know, you're skipping down the golden, you know, the golden road to free liberation and freedom. You know, it's not that easy. It's, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, our attachments and clinging are very hard to let go of. And, and we hold on to, they're very cherished sometimes. And to be able to let go of things we really cherish a lot, sometimes involves a lot of grief and a lot of fear to go through that, wrestling with our inner demons. So, did, is that, did I kind of, kind of get close to it, or kind of? Kind of, so not, you're not too disappointed. <laughs> not too disappointed. You know, I'm sure, I talked to you a couple of times now, I'm sure there's a lot more behind what you're asking, so, so, so thank you. So, but we should stop because it's, I don't want to keep you late. And um, so may, um, for those of you who would like to follow the Eightfold Path, I hope that it, uh, uh, you float on it and are carried down the stream to freedom. May you learn to float. <laughs>